Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off, just go to squarespace.com and use the offer code TWIP. This week on TWIP, I sit down with the team behind the feature film Boca for a discussion about funding a film with a Kickstarter campaign, shooting on location in Iceland, and more. It's Thursday, September 4th, 2014, and this is TWIP. Welcome back to TWIP. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson. This week, we've got a little something different for you. I had the opportunity to sit down with the team behind the upcoming feature film, Boca, and joining in on that discussion was Andrew Sullivan, the co-writer, co-director, Jeffrey Orthwine, the co-writer, also co-director, Joe Lindsay, director of photography, and Doug Dalton, the line producer. In this discussion, we dive deep into what it takes to make a feature film without a major studio's backing and some of the challenges involved with shooting a film on location in a different country, in this case, Iceland. But before we jump into that discussion, I'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode of TWIP, and that's our good friends over at Squarespace.com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off, just go to squarespace.com and use the offer code TWIP. And remember, the new Squarespace metric app for iPhone and iPad allows you to check site stats like page views, unique visitors, and social media follows. And with the blog app, you can make text updates, tap and drag images to change layouts, and monitor comments on the go. You can start a free trial. You don't need a credit card. You can start building your website today. Then, when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, just make sure to use the offer code TWIP, that's T-W-I-P, to get a full 10% off and to show your support for this week in photo. And we'd like to thank Squarespace for their support. Squarespace is everything you need to create an exceptional website. Okay, let's dive into the interview with Team Boca. All right, welcome to this very interesting, large interview that I'm going to be doing today. Uh, this was going to be, I, I think, really, really interesting for a ton of people for a, for a number of reasons. So basically, before I jump into it, these are the guys um, that are behind a an up-and-coming film called Boca. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the title of the film, where it came from, how they funded it, um, how they shot it. I mean, we're going, to, we're going to dive into the weeds on this thing. So in this hangout with me is Mr. Doug Dalton. He's a line producer on the film. Also, Andrew Sullivan, co-writer, co-director. Jeffrey Orthwine, he's the also a co-writer, co-director. And then Joe Lindsay, the director of photography. Hey, guys, how are you all doing? Hey. Great. Well. Hey, Frederick. All right, this is good. This is cool. So, first of all, congratulations. I saw that Kickstarter. You guys blew that out of the water, like, within the first, what, three hours or something? <laughs> The, the first day was great. We, we hit our target at day six. Um, I was actually flying to Jeff's house uh, towards San Francisco. I'm, I'm East Coast in Philadelphia, and there was no Internet on the plane, so I get off. Uh, I land on the runway, and there's about 20 messages from Jeff and Kat yeah. and Brienne, our, our Kickstarter producers, and it was pretty awesome. 
Yeah, that is really cool. I want to get into that with you guys a little bit, um, especially you know at the end of this, I want to talk about the Kickstarter yeah. and how that how you how and why you funded it through Kickstarter, um, and just your overall experiences with that. But first, before we do that, tell me about the film. Like the film itself, where did it come from? What was the genesis? Was it like you know Doug and Joe at a coffee shop scratching on a napkin or what? You know, how did it come about? What was the uh, what was the the birth of it? I want to hear about Doug and Joe scratching on that. Indian Jeff in a coffee shop scratching on a napkin. Was someone in a coffee shop? Much later. Jeff and I are always in coffee shops. Yeah, yeah. The Boca is pretty pretty much. Coffee shops are responsible for a good percentage of of the Boca pre-production, and 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 writing. Yeah. But but initially it was actually kind of the um the uh the you know 21st century equivalent of that uh in that Andy sent me an email last summer with with a with an initial idea pitch and and we took it from there. Andy, you can probably pick up that. Yeah, I'm a little bit better. Yeah, I mean it's um Jeff and I were working on various projects and they just were we were writing. Our projects were going to be too expensive to make, and we didn't have inroads to have a studio just say make this right. And um, other projects were going to need other people's permission. And Jeff and I just decided we just need to make something right. Like when you know you're always going to make a film, the problem is you know you're always going to make a film, so you don't actually have to make it tomorrow because it's always in front of you. And so, 2014, really 13 to 14, became that time where Jeff and I just knew we we were going to make a film. And so. Knowing the constraints we'd have, which is a limited budget, limited time, uh, limited access to crew, to cast, uh, we came up with this idea for Boca. And so I emailed him. Uh, Jeff happened to be in town about two weeks later. <laughs> I put together this well cheesy. It's a it's a keynote presentation. So it was about 25 photos that I took when I've I've gone to Iceland twice before and other photographers I liked, and just kind of took Jeff through some of the ideas. And then we got together in Los Angeles in August. And worked on the outline together, and then really the next four drafts over the next five or six months. Um, so, that, in, ter- in terms of independent film, it's a short timeline, right? Like we started July second, two thousand thirteen, was the idea. June twenty ninth, two thousand fourteen, was finishing principal photography. So, so really, just in a year. Wow, uh, that see that's insane. so th- this whole thing. When I saw it, when I f- was first exposed to it, I was thinking, you know what? Is this is this the way that indie films are going to be created in the future? You know, and I want to put that to you guys. It, are the days of like you're having an idea and the only way you can get it made is to like, you know, make a million sacrifices, which ends up impacting the quality of the film, and then no one likes it, and you know, but this one, looking at your trailer for this, this is like. This is a Hollywood. Not that Hollywood's the end-all, be-all of quality, but this is like up there in terms of anything that I've seen film-wise, you know, from in major theaters. So, you know, how does that work? I mean, is this? Are we in an age now where filmmaking is at in the hands of the modern man? I would I would say to a degree, yeah. Um, and, and and a lot of that goes goes into the technology and and, and you know the democratization of, uh, across the board from shooting to post to you know everything. Uh, I think all of those are uh, critical and, and important elements of that. But what it comes down to, or and maybe this isn't maybe this isn't the new paradigm, but what happened for Andy and I is, as he said, we had been working on a lot of projects. We've been writing, we've been writing partners for years. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were stuck in a similar kind of indie film world of like, eh, we just can't get this off the ground. It's not going to happen. It's too big. And so, 
you know, we kind of reset ourselves and, and we said, all right, so what is accomplishable and uh, aim for that and then uh, don't screw around. You know, this is, this is, we decided this isn't going to be something that we're going to do on nights and weekends. Yeah. This is something where it's like, okay, boom, this is us. We're, you know, this is what we're doing. We're, everything else, we're just going to put a wall up right now because um, we have to get this done. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, you know, that worked for us. And I, I would suggest that it, that probably does need to be the shift in that, uh, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to go, go big, you know, do it. Don't do it, uh, you know, when you can fit it around your other stuff. Find, find a way of, and yeah, there has been sacrifices, absolutely. All, everyone uh, on the film has, has made a significant sacrifice in order, in order for it to be the, the paramount thing. I also think it's key to lean into your constraints, right? Like this film, the idea of Boca was created partly because of our constraints, right? And so I just yeah. think it's too, honestly, I think if, if I hope something changes in paradigms, it's less excuses about, oh, I don't have this money, I don't have this camera, I don't have this thing. Um, Jeff and I tend to admire people who have less but do more than us, than have more. Um, I just, I don't want to be jealous of someone else's content. I want to be inspired by content regardless of what they have. And so for us, Boca was really created out of constraints. That I we like did not that. have all the money in the world. We didn't have all the assets in the world. And so um, we had to be more imaginative, quite frankly. We couldn't just, we had to rely on different tool set. And those constraints, I think, helped us in many ways on this film. Yeah, it's like uh, it's almost like digital judo, right? Or filmmaking judo, where you're using your opponent's strength against them. In this case, your opponent is are your constraints, right? So right, you're using yeah. the strengths to your to your advantage. Well, and one example of that is when when the script was done and they started reaching out to those of us who would become producers and crew on the shoot. When we got the script, it was the first thing you saw aside from a great story is this is accomplishable, right? I've had lots of scripts come across my desk where. You look at it and you're like, well, that's great. We can do that for six or seven million dollars. Who's got six or seven million dollars? But when you look at this, you're like, it's a, the, the whole package is compelling. The story is compelling, but it's also something that's achievable. And yeah. I think that's a big part of when um, Andy and Jeff went or started going around to folks to say, hey, do you want to be involved? People could look at it and get their head around it and say, yeah, we can do this. This isn't this isn't some pie in the sky thing. This is something we can we can accomplish. Yeah. Now, Joe Lindsay, you're the you're the director of the photography on this project, mm -hmm. and uh, you guys were shooting this in Iceland. So, first of all, is a why did we, did you pick Iceland to shoot this? And as a DP, what were some of the challenges that you ran up on? In I mean, I've never been to Iceland, and looking at your trailer, first of all, I was saying, wow, it's much more modern than I thought it would be. It looks, you know, it looks awesome, you know? So were you hitting, like, okay, we rent, we need this particular cable and we can't get it because we're in Iceland and we got to make do? How, how did the, the, the idea of shooting remotely like that go? You know, obviously there are, there are challenges on any remote location you go to if you miss something. And so we had tried to have two or three of everything that we could think of so that if one thing went down, we'd be okay. We actually had two C-300s to shoot the film with in case one went down, but we'd also have a secondary rig. Um, in terms of the idea of shooting in Iceland, that was really uh, Andy. Um, it was uh, Iceland itself. We shot there. I mean, and Andy, you can fill this in if I don't quite nail it, but Iceland itself is sort of the third character in the film, and there's no way the story itself would have worked out without it being in Iceland. So it, the decision was kind of out of my hands. It was just sort of what I was left to deal with in a lot of ways. Yeah. And the only tr uh, and the weather changing in Iceland was crazy. 
Uh, I'd say all of us were pretty run down by wind and, you know, sort of surprise hail or whatever would happen. But for the most part, it was just logistics of getting around. It was a really ambitious schedule. And um, the locations were beautiful, but the reason they were beautiful was a lot of, you know, waterfalls, which are, you know, really problematic for a lot of electronic <laughs> equipment. You know, so it was a matter of, um, you know, my first AC, Lane Genslinger, who actually brought the, um, the camera packages as well as his lenses. Um, we worked together for a long time knowing what we were going to be up against with the weather and did the very best we could to outfit each camera with enough weather protection to get us through the thing. Um, but for me, one of the biggest challenges of Iceland was actually how beautiful it is because sometimes you're in a situation where you're standing on top of a glacier and you're thinking to yourself when you leave, like, did I get it? I don't know. Like, did I do this this beautiful location justice? Yeah. Because we spent so much time surviving uh, each location and not as much time taking in every detail. Um, so that was kind of the biggest challenge for me, both creatively and physically and everything, was just making sure that I could step away from all of the challenges of getting from place to place and uh, the challenges of keeping the cameras up and running and really be able to keep my eyes open and see what each location had. Yeah, that's cool. I want to I want to get into some of the logistics of the gear that you guys use. And Joe, I I can imagine it's in your DNA to overbring gear, Absolutely. right? Yeah. <laughs> For some reason, I know I could see a lot of pelican cases in yeah. Iceland. <laughs> yeah, there definitely were. I can imagine the airport was probably like, "What are these guys doing?" <laughs> All right. So then, um, so you know, I've got yeah, my notes here. So you know, the title, Boca, you know, where, first of all, where did that come from, just the overall title? And, you know, when I first, like I said, the notes here, when I first saw it, you know, I saw Boca, uh, I think, Doug, you were the first one to expose me to it. I was like, oh, okay, they're, they're making a photography film that's going to focus somehow on shallow depth of field and all that, and that's going to be, they're going to do something cool with that. You know, that's what I was thinking. Then I watched the trailer, and I was like, okay, it has nothing to do, I mean, it has something to do with Boca, but not on a technical basis. You, who wants to explain that? We, we really just wanted to cover that if the film wasn't in focus, we would have an out. <laughs> Um, Blame it on the Boca. Exactly, totally, yeah. just like that. That's all intentional. Our first title was just going to be called Vaseline, but then we just went with Boca, and so that either that one would have gone horribly wrong, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Different film. Um, uh, Boca, I mean, it's a... Uh, so in the story, um, Riley and Janai, they're two American 20-somethings who go to Iceland to get away from it all, right, to go on vacation, their first vacation. Uh, they've been together for about six months, and... Um, so they go to Iceland, and about three days in, the world disappears, right? And so we'll talk about that later. But Riley's taught himself a lot about photography, and he uses his father's old twin reflex camera. Yeah. Um, so he's always taking pictures, right? And he's always he's he just he loves using this old camera. He's not about technology. He's 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 more than just a luddite. Like he doesn't he doesn't care about cell phones. Doesn't care about computers. Actually, wants to create something with his hands there. And so we we really liked an aspect of Boca that yes, it's about photography, but it's also you're defined as much by what you choose not to focus on as what you choose to focus on, right? And so a story of survival about two people who are the last two people on Earth, you are more defined than ever by what you're not focusing on and what you're focusing on. And so it just for us, it had that kind of dual meaning of photography and, and well beyond it. That's and, cool. and that's that's kind of the key. Uh, you know, we use it... We don't uh, go overboard with uh, uh, Boca in the in the film itself. Um, I, I mean that in terms of talking about it, not in terms of how we shot. Yeah. Um, 
but but it is the key metaphor for the film um, in 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 terms of you know they're they're put in a uh, obviously an extraordinary situation where you know you uh, everyone has the the sort of uh, uh, you know hero daydreams of what you would do in these you know amazing situations or crazy situations and of course you'd be the one that uh, saves the day yeah but uh, but the reality is sometimes you 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 tune into something you you get fixated on something and it's not always the right thing. And so the the concept of Boca as as being important and critical and not what the focus is, yeah. Not to be heavy-handed about that, we, you know that that was obviously the uh, the the line we were trying to walk. But that's that's the that, that's the the key idea. There's also there's also this beautiful thing in a twin reflex camera, and you if anyone knows this, you know this, which is you're looking through one lens, but you're taking a picture through the other, right? Yeah. And so. Riley is someone who is always pitching the future, kind of dismissing present, pitching the future. And so Twin Reflex Camera, again, we never talk about it in the film, but he's always looking at a different time than what the picture's being taken. Yes, they're very close to each other, but it's never, like, perfectly timed. And so he always thinks he's being present, but he's always wanting a future moment, right? Um, and that kind of just, it works well with Riley's story there. Um, yeah. And it is. There's something about looking through Twin Reflex Camera. When you're looking at Viewmaster... Everything's beautiful, and so as Joe said, Iceland is already beautiful enough. And then you just look through that lens, and there's just this beauty to it again. And so it just always it just has that real flavor to it. Yeah, that that place is definitely on my list um, to go to. Just looking at your trailer again, the the first scene in your trailer where you guys are standing up in front of some placid glass lake, you know, like what? <laughs> I need to go there. So that's, let's. That's, well, the, the, the crazy uh, sort of inside baseball of that is we were we shot, that was at the end of, uh, it was towards the end of the film, it was the end of a shooting day. Uh, that We shot that at 12.30 at night. So uh, that is one of those, the, the sun never goes down situations. Wow. That is a, our, Andy and I standing up for the Kickstarter shoot is a, is a midnight shoot, but you wouldn't necessarily know it looking at it. That's a photographer's dream over there, constant daylight and beautiful vistas everywhere you turn. Well, in three hours of, uh, of Magic Hour, uh, wow. even more than that, really. There, there was, Joe made a point that's key, which is Joe and I were driving back one Saturday night. This was, I think, towards the third week. It was a long day. It was actually one of our better days shooting, and we were so angry of how beautiful Iceland was. Like, it is just... <laughs> we were just swearing at it because it is unrelenting. Like, even if it's cloudy, there's a mountain, and there's some sun, and there's just this opening, and just wow. it just would not stop being beautiful. Yeah, it reminds me of, like, New Zealand it has a similar kind of... Uh, it inspires a similar anger, I will say. <laughs> So okay, so let's talk a little bit about the uh, the the angle of the film. So we talked about the title, but you know one of the one of my favorite films this year that came out was uh, a film featuring or starring Joaquin Phoenix and Scarlett Johansson, or at least the voice of Scarlett. It was called Her, and it kind of reminded me. I love the film, but it reminded me that you know science fiction isn't always robots and explosions or aliens taking over people's bodies, and you know sometimes it can be more cerebral like this film. Are you guys seeing a trend in that, and why did you choose to go that direction with this film as, as opposed to something more obviously sci-fi? I think there is, there is a trend, for sure, uh, partly because the, the, the big-budget sci-fi films are, do tend to be driven by, uh, you know, the robots. Right, uh, right. Transformers. Or, or yeah. what have you. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, obviously, we're a low-budget film. We're not going to have robots. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the sci-fi, uh, in Boca is, uh, we, we would kind of joke that, uh, you 
know, Book is really, it's more of a relationship film. It's just dressed up as a sci-fi film. Um, it gives us, uh, you know, the context to kind of, kind of play with these things. Um, and, and, you know, the, the end of the world scenario is hardly the newest scenario uh, out there. Right. Um, but we, we did feel like we had, a, had a, our, own, our own angle on it. Yeah. No, I think it's, I think it's, I mean, from the trailer, I want to see the film. So, you know, we're going to get into this, you know, release dates and all this. I'll put your feet to the fire so that you can find out when and where we can see it. Before we do that, Joe, I want, Joe, I want to get back to you on the gear side of things. You mentioned that you shot this with a C300 or a group of them. First of all, yeah. what are those for the, the DSLR and mirrorless shooters and TWIP audience? What are those strange numbers and letters that you just mentioned? Sure. And why yeah, did you choose those instead of, like, a Canon, Nikon, or mirrorless or whatever? Sure. Um, we uh, decided – well, the C300 is, uh, you know, Canon's entry into the cinema camera world after, you know, the 5D, 7D blow up, you know, a few years ago. Yeah. And um, they've been out and around for a few years, and I use them all the time. Um and it's a beautiful image and a, and a pretty uh, manageable workflow in a lot of ways. Um, and we had two options, really, in terms of what we had access to. We, and it was important to us that we had, because of the, te- the restraints that we talked about before, um, in terms of availability in Iceland, we wanted to be redundant. Yeah. We wanted to make sure we had two of whatever camera we were going to use. And we went through a few different options to start with, but... The two front runners were either, you know, shooting with a couple of Red Scarlets or a couple of C300s. Okay. And um, I uh, generally found that uh, the C300 for me is easier to get through a day with uh, less support than um, a Red workflow uh, or a Red Red package in general. Um, reds are great, and you know, high resolution stuff is awesome. Um, and they're robust, and they can really handle a lot, but the issue being they suck up a lot of batteries, Um, and when you're shooting 4K raw, you're churning through tons of data. And I had to think about um, not only what we were going to have to do with on set in terms of keeping up with, you know, keeping that many batteries on charge, big V-Lock batteries on charge all day um, in in these remote locations. So that alone is a huge expense just to make sure that you have enough to cover you there, and then also what our data wrangler was going to have to deal with at the end of the day um, in terms of, you know, what may be, you know, 128 gigs a, a day for a C300 would be, you know, hundreds of gigs or, you know, almost probably a terabyte of shooting, you know, in, in relationship. And, yeah, you lose a lot. We're not shooting. We didn't shoot it in RAW. We had to shoot in the um, – we had a dual system where we did – the internal Canon MXF format to compact flashcards, mm-hmm. but then we also used a Samurai Blade and um, a Pix240 um, in conjunction, depending on what our, our setups were, um, to record ProRes 422 to get the most out that we could out of the image. Yeah. And um, Andy, Jeff, and I had also talked uh, early on um, about the style that we wanted to shoot with, and uh, our dream was to shoot a movie in uh, anamorphic, um, which is, uh, you know, taking a lens, that, an anamorphic lens essentially squeezes your image uh, vertically so that um, when you pop it out, it's extra wide. And that can be achieved in two ways. One is optically, which would be using a proper anamorphic lens, and the other way to do it is just to crop the top and the bottom. Um, but the thing about anamorphic lenses, they're huge, they're rare, they're expensive. And um, so we've kind of played around with some other ideas, and our 
our second AC slash data wrangler slash movie operator, Brent Schnarr, um, pointed out to us that uh, Lettuce actually makes an anamorphic adapter that works on the front of Zeiss Compact Prime lenses, which we had a set of. And it was kind of a perfect solution to um, to shoot this in an, an interesting way, still shoot anamorphic, but in a way that was friendly to our budget. And um, there were a lot of things that weren't necessarily anamorphic. I uh, didn't have some of the anamorphic characteristics, like lens flares and stuff like that, that you might get out of you know a $30,000 lens. But I mean, we still were able to maximize resolution and, and really get a nice looking image. So so here's a, here's a question to both, just to tack onto that, Joe, um, for you and Doug. So when you're out there and you're on the ground doing this, or when you're sort of figuring out your gear list of what you're going to bring out there in order to get the job done and the redundancy and the power, like you mentioned, Joe, you know, having everything charged and there's no really, there's no real margin for error. Plus you're looking at these big budget cameras. That C300 is not cheap, right? Mm -hmm. And then you brought multiple of them. I think you said three, right? So yeah, yeah. why, why did you go that direction instead of taking one of the cheaper options um, like from Sony, the A7S, which shoots 4K, or the Panasonic GH4, which shoots 4K? You know, one of those options instead of going with more of a purpose-built system like the C300. We actually, we actually had more than we shot with um, the bulk of the film. We, had, we did have a GH4, and we had that reserved for aerial stuff as well as mm -hmm. um, one of our small... We had two uh, Movi rigs with us. We had the M5 and the M10, and the M5 was set up to work with the GH4, and we used it for a few shots here and there. Um, to be honest, uh, the reason I stuck with the C300 is because I knew it the best. Yeah. Um, I shot, and in those situations where we're moving quickly, and there is zero margin of error, it's not that I had any doubt that we could get a great-looking image from those cameras. I just didn't know how to do it. Yeah. And with sense. the C300, since I use it every day, um, it, it, it was more of a, I know exactly how to hit this sensor in the right way in this lighting condition and know that I'm going to get what we need. Yeah. yeah that's that's perfect. The other practical reality is the A7S and the GH4 weren't around for Joe to be able to test before we left. So yeah. we couldn't, I mean, we had, uh, Panasonic was nice enough, uh, uh, Tom Curley was nice enough to send one out for us to shoot behind the scenes with and do some second unit pickups with, um, but we it just wasn't available for us to even consider it at that point. Uh, That's cool. That well, was, I think that was, that, that was the key component is yeah. that, uh, you know, uh, Joe and I have been, been uh, well, we've all been working together, but, uh, uh, you know, just in the last year, Joe and I have shot some stuff uh, for, for other uh, other things uh, on the C300 with those compact primes. Uh, so when we were having the discussion, and it was very much something that, you know, uh, was uh, kind of in that familiar range, mm -hmm. uh, given all of the other variables that we knew we would encounter overseas, uh, this was this was a thing where like yeah this is let's uh, have a reliable camera package. Yeah. But there's fewer questions about so that we can put all our energy into whatever's going to come at us. Because right. we forgot about mentioning the most complex factor in this, which is Joe has the Steadicam on for over half the film as you watch the Kickstarter video and you see the movement. Yeah. Joe is wearing a Steadicam in half of the 60 locations we shot it for half of the time, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it isn't just that it's a camera and which camera it is. He is always moving, always carrying over fifty pounds. What 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 really makes sense in that in that equation? Wow. Mm -hmm. How did how did you guys manage audio? What was the what was the setup for that piece of it? Um, Sean Doyle is our uh, our 
our audio mixer, and um, he had a boom operator for most of it. And I can't, you know, to be honest, I can't remember what his recorder is. He has like an eight-channel recorder with okay. um, with uh, wireless Maxcom yeah. units that, um, you know, so he had a hidden lav and a boom on every every shot. But and Sean again, Sean probably had one of the hardest jobs. Um, clean audio is always important, but when we're trying to tell a story about two people and being the only two people in Iceland, <laughs> uh, there are only 250,000 people in Iceland and there are about 300,000 tourists. So it's we knew we could get it mostly empty, but we weren't locked. Like, we could shoot anywhere. It was amazing where we could shoot, and we could have a mall to ourselves. We could have hardware stores. But once we're in Reykjavik, we can't shut down streets. Right. And so even when it's clean audio, Sean will tell us there's a car four blocks away, right? Because he's that good, and we want someone that good. So the world didn't quit, even though we demanded a story that said the world quit. And so if anyone, like, when Sean had a good day, Jeff and I had the best day, just because we were so happy that Sean was able to get clean audio and what was, uh, Joe said it, wind constantly, like wind alone, but just the amount, there will be 10 minutes of blooper reels where you'll hear Riley and Janai played by um, Micah and Matt, Micah Monroe and, and Matt O'Leary, where they're just like, why are, where'd everyone go? And then a car would go by. Where'd everyone go? Then three people would walk by. Where'd everyone go? Then a drunk would go by, right? So it's, right. there's there's more than 10 minutes of footage of them saying the world is empty and people walking by. And yeah. and Sean and audio, the level that he had to do to try to get clean audio um, was incredible. And we're nothing but grateful for him for it. You know what? I was, I was going to ask about that. Like, you know, films like yours and like, say... Like, I Am Legend with Will Smith, you know, where it's an apocalyptic future and everyone's gone and you're shooting in these scenes that ordinarily would be packed with people, but they somehow manage. I mean, I'm sure, you know, there's CG and all that stuff. But how, like, how, like the hardware scene in your trailer, you know, they're going through a Home Depot. Did you guys arrange to go in when it was closed? Or, like, how did you, what were the logistics around making a world appear devoid of people? That's exactly what we did. We uh, we negotiated with locations like uh, uh, Bauhaus, correct? Yep. Um, yep. Which is the Icelandic equivalent of uh, Home Depot. Okay. We showed up at 11 o'clock at night after they were closed. That was our first shoot of the night. And so we went in, and there was no one there. But uh, for a lot of the things that you see in Reykjavik, we uh, we were literally, you know, kind of get gorilla blocking off streets. You know, there'd be one person down at the end of the street you know, we'd be on walkies and say, you know, uh, Dave Hall or uh, First AD would say action, and then two of us would be blocking off the street, just kind of politely saying, we're shooting a film, would you please not walk down the street? And every now and then someone would basically just drive on through, or <laughs> we had we had one drunk uh, drunk woman, you know, cost our crew and try to walk into the shot, uh, <laughs> which was just amazingly funny. It was a, it was a, it wasn't funny at the moment because we were trying to get things done. Funny. <laughs> but in retrospect, it's hilarious because that's one of the funny things you think about Reiki because you get 20 hours of sunlight and you figure it's we know it's one o'clock in the morning and, and yes, it looks like it's noon. Yeah. All the Icelanders are going to be asleep. Well, not always the case, particularly not on. Uh, not on Friday and Saturday night, where people will be out in the streets until four or five o'clock in the morning sometimes. So, yeah, uh, we're, we're definitely yeah. going to need a, a blooper reel from you guys because <laughs> drunk lady and you know the the actors saying, "Oh, there's no one here," and then you know lovers walk by. <laughs> it, it is. It's it's amazing the location wise. Uh, we had a location manager and scout Arnar who who really found locations. And he found a couple that have never been filmed at before. Brienne did a lot of coordinating. One of our producers, Brian Lerman, did a lot of coordinating. And 
the fact we're able to get a mall to ourselves for $200 is insane, right? Like there's the fact we could get a horse farm to ourselves for $200. I mean, just we did around 60 locations for I think under $10,000, and if that was in America, it'd be 10 times that. I mean, it was – what's great is um, – just like What did you say, Doug? That's just the location fees. Not like yeah. when you talk about I Am Legend, there's a right. whole crew of, you know, ten times the size of our crew just keeping the streets clear. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sorry, that's, that's, the, that's the, key, the key achievement, I feel like, for, for the entire Boca crew is that, yeah, I mean, I Am Legend, there's the whole second units locking down blocks at a time. We, our crew was uh, 14, 16 yeah. of us. Wow. You know, yeah. uh, that's everybody. That, like... That's everybody. Uh, so when when you've got you know when your when your crew count is in the teens, uh, locking down an intersection uh, is no small feat. And and there's there's probably one of my favorite shots. Uh, man, there's so many that I love that Joe did. Um, but there's one outside our hotel where Riley and Jen and I are trying to figure out what's going on. So it's meant to be 10 a.m. We shot it at 4 a.m. Um, 3 to 4 a.m. And Joe is doing circles around them so you can see the two highways and the two roads completely empty. Yeah. Um, to just prove the entire world is empty. If you can't prove Reykjavik's empty, it doesn't matter if you can prove everything else is empty. Unless you can prove the city is empty right away, we have a problem. And watching Joe with a steady cam having to get that shot. And then all of a sudden at 3.15 would be the next air, the next airport, which is about 40, 40, 50 minutes away. All the shuttles would show up at 3.15. That would just pick up the next six people. We'd wait 15 more minutes, do the shot again, um, while the camera's either on his shoulder or having to put down. So, I mean... A lot of credit goes to Mike and Matt or two actors because we're asking him to do a lot of intimate, a lot of reflective scenes, a lot of, as you said, cerebral, a lot of just movement, and we're interrupting it all the time because we didn't have that budget that said the world would stop all the time. Yeah. In our indoor locations, it's great. On a glacier, it's fine. Right behind a waterfall, it's we could pull some things off. But but downtown Reykjavik um, were some of the hardest things, and I, I'm most proud of the cast and the crew for what they tried to achieve there. Now, on the on the side of photography... How does how does that piece work for the for the uninitiated filmmaker, right? So, what's the interaction between the director and the director of photography? Do you guys just sort of sketch out like the, as from the director's standpoint, this is kind of what the shot is. Here's a script, and then Joe takes that and conceptualizes what the photography is going to be, or is it much more prescriptive than that? How does that piece work? I, I think it's probably. Uh... I, I suspect that that relationship is unique to every film. You know, everyone's gonna, every film's gonna have its own uh, uh, interpretation of that. For for Boca, um, it really was. I feel like uh, you know, Andy, Joe, and I were were really just a, a, a team in uh, creating creating the images uh, from from different perspectives. Uh, obviously, Joe was. Um, Overseeing uh, all the all the actual execution and and, and technical um, uh, aspect of it, uh, but you know in pre-production we uh, we did a lot of shot listing, we did storyboarding, we discussed uh, after after we had our location scout, we discussed uh, you know the, the the locations and how we would approach it, mm -hmm. and then uh, you know you arrive at a location on a day and realize that all of that prep almost is meaningless because the location has its own challenges and you almost have to start over uh, on the day. Uh, the prep, of course, is not meaningless. It, it's, it, it's critical in, in allowing you to reset more on the day. Right. But, uh, but um, yeah, it was, uh, I don't know, there was, there was, a, there was a, it was all the stuff. It was, it was shot listing, it was, it was storyboarding, and it was, it was constant uh, discussions of, oh, well, we can't do that, so what can't we do? 
Yeah, it, planning, planning. It's kind of it reminds me of uh, uh, General Colin Powell used to say, "No battle plan survives first contact with the enemy." So, <laughs> yeah. well, you can plan we, all day long; it doesn't matter when you're in it. Right? We 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 like to saying that we couldn't use all the time because you get so exhausted when people say, oh, "We'll fix it in post." We tried to say, "We'll fix it in pre." Like just plan enough that. But but something I would say really in that relationship with uh, Joe, Jeff, and myself is really Joe's relationship with our two actors, Micah and Matt. Um, they built a level of trust very quickly because Jeff's, because Joe's doing so much on study cam, you are creating these things on the fly. And what was exciting for Jeff and I to see was Mike and Matt's relationship and trust in Joe um, and that direct relationship where they knew how to bob in and out of these really complex movements um, through various stages, various locations, while always wearing the study cam. And so as much as it was the three of us in our relationship, we were really excited um, by the relationship Mike and Matt had with Joe specifically. Yeah, it was an amazing, amazing experience to have that. And um, particularly situations where, you know, it's a very com there, there were some where it was sort of letting them wander through a space, seeing what they wanted to do, and I was more keeping up with them. And that was more of the sort of the filler, the little bits here and there, they weren't um, particular story points. Um, but there were other ones where you could just feel, you know, Micah and Matt working as hard as I am. We're all working together to make it the best possible image, best scene we possibly can. And um, that relationship we had was incredible. I've never, never had that experience with uh, other actors. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting. I always wonder what that interaction is because you know you watch the credits on films and you see director of photography and all this and I always wonder what does that mean does that mean this is the person that's consulting on composition and then you go back you know and go sip your coffee while while it's being shot <laughs> or actually are you are you blocking out shots and saying you know compositionally the actor should be coming from that direction even though the storyboard said it like you know I always wonder what that DP actually means and now I, I kind of know so. yeah and, and like Jeff said I mean it's it's kind of unique to every situation um, but I would say all of the above everything you just said you know it's it's my job as director of photography to take what um, Jeff and Andy are looking for and and work with my team underneath me, whether it's my assistant cameramen or camera operators or my gaffer and grips that are working on lighting for me, on how we can achieve it and be the eye of the of the story. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I would throw in there's there's one other role there that is a script supervisor um, and and, and uh, Kat Gotti, who was our script supervisor, the first time she ever did it. Both of her actors were you know just raving you know, about what how many films have you done because this is obviously your tenth or twelfth. And the script supervisor's job is literally to sit there and go through the script, and as we're shooting each day, to break down. Oh well, and you know we shot because films aren't shot in order; they don't go in the order that you see it in the in the production or in the final product. So we might shoot, you know, scene one on the fifteenth day of shooting, and she needs she's this literally there saying, okay, when we set up for this shot, she was wearing a red hoodie with her hair down, right, and. She her face was dirty, so we have to re then go to our makeup, Margaret Kerrigan, and have that recreated and come back in. And so a lot of that ties back in because as Joe and Andy and Jeff were trying to get the emotional content and the framing set up, then you have the script supervisor coming back in and making sure everything ties together. Because if it's not cohesive, it feels like it was shot out of order, then the suspension of disbelief breaks down. So that's yeah, another illusion. part of that whole process. Now, did you guys you guys mention that you were shooting this in 4K and um, are you going to deliver it in 4K, or, or or will you be using the fact that you shot in such a high resolution so that you can deliver in a lower resolution and then 
punch into frames and that sort of thing? Well, we actually, I, that, I may have misspoke. Uh, I think we were talking about possibly using the Scarlet and shooting in 4K, but the C300 is just uh, 1080p. Oh, okay. So you said in, yeah. we, we did shoot a couple of second unit pieces in, in 4K and on the 7, 5D Mark III or two. Mm-hmm. Those will just be, as Joe mentioned, cropped in. So it's not now, a lot of that in the, in the, in the film. Yeah, I mean we have a we have a, a variety of formats and and camera bodies. The uh, but our but our primary rig of the C300 with the uh, anamorphic lens. It, the C300 is a 1080 sensor, but with the anamorphic, once we de-squeeze it, our uh, our final resolution will be 2554 by 1080. Okay. So it is it, it's the anamorphic uh, 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 widescreen version of 1080. It's going to be brilliant. I can't. I can't wait to see it. So then, let's jump into post processing real quick and how all that's going to happen. So the the whole gist of the Kickstarter campaign that you guys ran was to raise funds so that you could take some bags of cash and drop it on post processing people to make it, all the magic happen. Which I assume you now have a couple more bags of cash than you anticipated since the success of that thing. So what does that look like? Are you guys is the post processing going to happen on? You know, Final Cut Pro 10? Is it Premiere? Is it iMovie? <laughs> what's what's going to be used to cut this thing down? Uh, that was a big discussion, uh, for sure. Um, it, it's being cut right now. We're, we're in the middle of the edit. Um, and after, uh, you know, a, a fair amount of assessment, we did uh, land on Final Cut Pro 10. Okay. Um, you know, and there's, uh, you know, this, the, the question of your NLE is, is uh, similar to the, Canon Nikon debate and the Mac PC debate and the Android iPhone debate. You no know, it's, right answer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um. You know, everybody's right and everybody's wrong. Well, on the uh, Mac PC debate, right. there's probably a right answer, but the rest of them, <laughs> I get what you're saying. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, Depends on if you want the film to be finished or not. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's funny. You know, we we call them tools and we discuss them as tools, uh, but then we treat them as, uh, you know, religious uh, uh, iconography or something, yes. you know. Yes. Uh, an NLE is a, is, is a screwdriver, and, uh, you know, I can, I can uh, put it together with, a, with a, a Phillips head or a flathead, but, you know, eventually I'll choose one. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the choice to go with Final Cut Pro X uh, ultimately was driven... Um, in part, uh, similar to similarly to the the decision to, to shoot, shoot with the Canon C three hundred, it was the the editor that uh, we knew the best, uh, had had the most experience on, and felt that given our um, aggressive post production schedule, it's going to be the editor that will allow us to cut the fastest. Yeah, um, it's uh, you know in in terms of speed, uh, I don't see anything. Uh, you know, there's there's not really a comparison there. So as long as you can, uh, as long as you can uh, make sure the other bases are covered, uh, you know, uh, workflow with with uh, the audio mix and workflow with visual effects and work through workflow with the color grade. As long as all of that is good, and we did tests, uh, you know, uh, full round trip tests and all of those, um, then uh, as long as you feel confident about that, then you know, full steam ahead. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting, like what you said about the the end result was driving the choices and the gear that you guys were familiar with, like in the case of Joe knowing the C300, doesn't mean the other gear wasn't good or couldn't do the job. It was like, okay, I'm expert on this particular samurai sword. I'm not going into battle with a new one. You know, <laughs> use my own samurai sword. 
Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, in marketing, there's a saying um, that you know it talks about the whole idea of features and benefits. That when you're selling something, like say you're selling drills, you're not selling the drill and the features of the drill. You're selling holes in the wall, right? <laughs> so you're you're selling the end result is what people want. They could care less about how they get there as long as they get there. And you guys are the the, the, the hole in the wall for you was a smooth as low a price or low, lowest budget production as you could get to, right? Yeah. Well, a, big, a big part of that at any level of the production has to do with the people who are executing it and their confidence level and, and their ability, and a lot of that is driven by the tools they're comfortable with. So uh, as these decisions came up in pre-production, a lot of it was, okay, well, you know, we, we rely on Joe. We know we know Joe what Joe can produce, mm-hmm. and Joe is comfortable with the C300. It's not really even a conversation anymore, right, because Joe's confident in it, therefore the rest of us are confident in it. So, uh, so you, guys, you guys are shooting mountains and mountains of data, right? So where and how did you manage that on location, right? So I can't imagine how much footage that you guys shot with these with these monster cameras out there. The hard drives and hard drives of data, what did you use to store it all? And I'm sure knowing Joe, that I'm sure there was some level of redundancy slash tridundancy going on there. <laughs> so There was, in fact, tridundancy. I, I did I put that together with Brent, so I think I can probably speak to that. We um, we built th- uh, three, well, excuse me, two 16-terabyte raids, um, and uh, every day um, uh, Brent, who was the DIT, along with a bunch of other hats he wore and the camera crew, would uh, bring the cards back and, and back them up, um, make redundant files, and then also do dailies in H.264 format. Mm-hmm. I think he ran those through Sorens and Squeeze, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. so that uh, so that Andy, Jeff, and Joe could uh, walk through everything and get a sense of where the shots were and if there were any pickups that we needed to do you know, beyond that. Um, and there was redundancy. We built uh, two raids out, so we had two copies on site. And then we also had a bare drive set up so that once everything was copied over, we made a bare drive backup. Mm-hmm. Which we then um, took off site and shipped back home. So while we were, you know, we all came up with that, you know, there's no, there is no copy of the film unless there are three copies of the film world. So that's the way we worked it. And so we would, you know, one of them would come over to me. We we all lived in different apartments. One would be off site with me. And uh, the original plan was we were going to ship them back, but things got so harried that you know, the third uh, copy stayed with me. So now there's one copy. With me in Las Vegas, there's a copy with Jeff in San uh, in San Francisco, and there's a copy with Joe in San Francisco now. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, there's a ton of data. I think the total footprint for the data was 13 and a half terabytes. Wow, that's um, crazy. So lots of footage. That's crazy. So back to the the 4K question again. I know you guys you didn't shoot in 4K, but and I would assume largely because, like Doug was saying, the tools weren't there yet and the familiarity with the C300 was like going back in time or going fast forwarding to the next project would you shoot it in 4K you know and and if so why or why not um i i wouldn't be opposed to 4K but it, as long as it was set up in a way that um we could manage it you know i think if given the opportunity to shoot this film over again i wouldn't i still would stick to my guns and not shoot it in 4K just because cool. It's more data than we really wanted to use. And and the other thing about the C300 is that um, the sensor itself is actually a 4K sensor, um, but it only encodes the footage in HD. So what that leaves you with is a very similar quality to 
say, a red that you shoot in 4K and then scale it down to HD anyways. You're getting the same uh, same sharpness, same look to it, but with half the data. And we know that we're only delivering in 1080p. Uh, to me, it just it seemed like it was going to be a little bit more than we needed to deal with. Yeah. Um, and I also, uh, as a um, sort of pretentious director of photography, <laughs> I, uh, I'm a little uppity about cropping in to footage, so I would never recommend um, shooting 4K... It's a very producery thing to say, let's shoot in 4K so we can always punch in and post. Right. And that is that kills me inside. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of you dies inside yeah. when people do that. Right? Well, we I, spend so much I just time want to say, that as a producer, I agree with Joe. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you spend so much time trying to get a um, perfect a frame and to make it look exactly how you want. Everybody's signing off on set and to have someone go back in there and, and make an adjustment without you there is, is uh, sort of a horrifying, horrifying idea. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's my, my main thing. And, and Canon does have a 4K camera. They do have the C500. You need an external recorder for it, I believe. But, um, you know, that would probably, again, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big Canon guy. I, I love um, working with the cameras, and I love the image I get out of it. And it's where my familiarity is. You know, I got my start with DSLRs and 5Ds, 5D Mark III, all that stuff. So um, to me, it, it, I would probably lean in that direction if we were going to do it again. So Joe, uh, when you when you move from the DSLR on the Canon side to the more motion centric C three hundred, was that like a did like angels sing a little bit and you're like it was <laughs> finally I have my gear. Yeah, it was an amazing amazing day for me. The first day I had uh, a bigger camera, and like I said, I mean I had shot a lot on you know Reds and yeah and uh, the higher end Sony stuff like an F three and and stuff like that a lot, but. Um, but yeah, there is. There was just something. It was. It was an, an image that I was used to because yeah, it's designed. The sensor is designed by the same company as everything else I've been working with. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the biggest things, and one thing I neglected to talk about with the C three hundred, that kind of uh, made it the front runner in our decision was its low light uh, capability is um, in its price range and and what we were uh, looking at. To me, had the most promise considering what we were trying to do. Um, we were moving so quickly. Uh, our lighting package was really small. There was very little we could do to really augment. You know, there was fills here and there, a lot of indirect um, bouncing, and but for the most part, we relied on windows and and just sort of the natural, soft, overcast light of Iceland for the exteriors. Yeah. But um, what I've I've pushed the you know the C500 or sorry, excuse me, C300 to you know. 2,500, 3,000, 4,000 before I kind of start to to really consider it being a problem. Yeah. Um, and its native ISO is 850, so you're already starting in a in a place where um, you're going to get a lot of dynamic range out of that sensor, even though you're pushing it at high ISOs, which um, I didn't get that I didn't have that experience with other cameras in its price range. That's cool. That's cool. All right, so let's let's wrap this up a little bit, guys. So I want to I want to. First of all, you guys, you mentioned that this was in post now, so that's going along. When are you going to be done? When is this going to be at a point where we can go see it? And then where are you planning on distribu- distributing the film? Is it going to be a Tribeca Film Festival? Or are we going to see it in a theater near me, on Vimeo, YouTube, where? Uh, I guess I'll jump in on this one first. Um, so yeah, so we don't we uh, a lot of films die in post, right? The way that they die in production, they die in marketing, and they die in everything else. And so our film won't live in post forever. Um, it won't go to post heaven or hell. Um, so for us, we are we're heading into submission season for festivals. 
um, Sundance. Uh, the Winter Spring Festivals are Sundance, Berlin, Tribeca, South South by Southwest, and Con is really that five month schedule. So um, we're working on the rough we're working on the rough cut right now, so we can have it out there and submit to Sundance. We'll go from there, right? Like the the odds are against a film for submission. I'm not saying that out of humility. It's just like that's where it is. Um, one of the reasons, one of the other reasons that we did a Kickstarter campaign is we wanted to put something out there and prove that we're making something relevant, right? And if we're making something relevant, and if we um, are trying to make something compelling and don't go hat in hand, but actually try to put something out there, discipline and hard work, good things happen. So we we've been contacted by some of the bigger uh, distributors already. We've been contacted both by theatrical ones, online ones, kind of hybrid ones. Um, in the earliest discussions, maybe they'll go somewhere, maybe they won't. But it's um. Again, it was like people think about Kickstarter in terms of just getting money or just building an audience or just doing this. Well, it's like you do the hard work. There's actually a lot of wins that can come out of it. So, I mean, um, we we have we don't know what our distribution plan looks like yet, right? Like we're very much open to the models are changing so quickly for indie indie films, right? Where we're fortunate enough is that on a bad day, this film still gets on iTunes, it gets on Amazon, it gets on Hulu, it gets on Netflix, it gets on 300 other online aggregators. That's a bad day. Two years ago, a bad day was your film would never be seen by anyone if you're an indie filmmaker, even two years ago. And so not saying that that is our bar, but a bad day is people will see our film and we'll get it out there throughout the world. Yeah. A good day is more than that. A good day is a bigger audience. A good day may be um, offline and online, some form of 25 cities and, and some form of online in different languages. So, I mean, we'll go from there. But it is, it's an amazing thing to see just in the past couple of years. Um, of of how indie films can now find audiences in different ways. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. I mean, yeah, if you it, the same goes for photography. Back in the olden days of shooting right. film, yeah, you were limited to by geography or how many people could see a print. These days, distribution options are abound, right? right. And, and commerce options as well. If you want to charge for the film, charge for downloads, and then. Of course, you guys funded it, which I want to talk about next, is with Kickstarter. So you're ahead of the game there. It's not like you maxed out your Visa cards in order to fund the film, and now we have to make at least X amount of dollars or I'm going to lose the house. You know, It wasn't that kind of proposition. Tell me about the Kickstarter campaign. How did that go? What were some of the learnings that you guys learned? And now, you know, what's hindsight? What would you do differently now that you know what you know today? Um, I guess I'll jump in first. Um... So Jeff and I knew since actually the beginning of Boca we'd want to do a Kickstarter campaign. We just we love the idea of crowdfunding. I love the idea of innovative R and D, not just charitable or not just charitable like innovation, but R, like innovative R and D is just a pretty amazing thing. Um, mm -hmm. There's so many people debating about what people should do, whereas there are these small pockets of people just making things, right? right. Putting their art out there, putting their talent out there, and so we wanted to be a part of that. Partly again for um, being able to build an. Uh, build some dollars towards this to see if we made something relevant, partly to build an online audience, right, the beginning of an online audience there, and, and partly, again, to see um, we had over 30 composers reach out to us. We've had some um, visual effects houses and things, and so relationships that we're making because of this. Um, uh, we Our script supervisor that uh, Doug mentioned before, Kat Gaddy, was our Kickstarter producer. Um, she and one of our other producers, Brianne Lerma, were kind of heads down in this and in helping to work on the campaign. And so uh, the first thing I tell anyone is that if you're doing a Kickstarter campaign, have a producer, have someone other than you um, work on the campaign. I think what helped us is it wasn't as much as it, Jeff and I would love to say it's us, it's not us. Like there are a lot of campaigns with two people and those are hard, right? Like there, we had a team of more than 10 people, half the crew, Joe, Doug specifically, like these were two people who really reached out to their networks. Um, 
for us, and people again, think about Kickstarter and like, I'm gonna reach 500 people, I'm gonna reach 1,000. You should think about Kickstarters, I'm gonna reach one person, and I'm gonna send one person an email. I'm gonna send the next person I know an email, and I'm gonna work Facebook, as much as I have my own challenges with Facebook, it is the best tool for this in terms of just, I'm gonna message people, and that feels a little odd, and then just trying to keep our video in the stream for four days. Like, right. we did not actually slam our audience by saying give every day. We actually, we made the one video and the one post at the beginning saying, um, we're gonna ask you to do three things. Watch the video, consider backing the project, share the project. And so um, with some relationships we created, we had over 1,700 shares in our first week, uh, Facebook shares. And so the video kind of, we were told by people, it's like, wow, you guys are really hitting us. And we weren't. It just it kept getting shared and shared and shared. And so, yeah. I mean, it's the same thing as a film, which is it is about pre-production. Kickstarter campaign should be decided almost before you do it. You should do as much research. Um, Doug is great with Kickstarter, has a lot of experience in terms of um, really understanding how the mechanics of it works and so we just studied. We studied the way we'd study for aspects of film and, and we just did the work. The, the surreal part I think for all of us is we did it like we launched it right when we get back, right? Because that's the time to do it. So Jeff who cut that beautiful video um, and really Jeff just found that voice in the video of what we wanted, that's within two and a half weeks of coming back from Iceland, right? I mean um, the last thing we thought we were going to do is show that much of the film then. Um, um, and we're grateful we did. We, we've been rewarded for sharing this film, right? Normally Jeff and I are actually pretty quiet, pretty reserved in terms of we keep secrets until something is real. Sure. And on this film we just decided, no, we are gonna, <laughs> we're going to just put it out there and if we do that we'll be rewarded. We've been rewarded every step of the way. Better, more crew members, more, um, more ability to get the film made. So I mean that's been Kickstarter at least from my point of view. Yeah. No, Doug. When you when you since you're the Kickstarter expert and you have a, a body of knowledge on this, I I've seen Kickstarter campaigns that, you know, they start well and they fizzle. Either they don't get funded or they go through the roof and the you know the 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 people running it maybe they ask for fifty grand and they get up to like half a million. You know, how do what's the magic in there? What's the magic of creating a successful campaign or is there magic? Well, I've been fortunate to have some good friends who. Had some hugely successful Kickstarters, and so I had the benefit of reaching out to them before we got started. And I think one of the big things is, um, you know, we had a film in the can when we did our Kickstarter. You know, you see a lot of projects that come back and say, we want to go shoot a movie in Iceland, and it's going to cost us, you know, half a million dollars. Please fund our Kickstarter. Well, that's a pretty humongous goal to get to, right? Um, and and if you're and if if you're like most of us, we don't. This is our first film. You know, we've done, all worked in production. We've all worked in live or commercial, you know, we've all touched it. And that's, I think that's one of the things that makes this team, um, in some respects, kind of unique. And I don't mean to be disparaging, but you see a lot of people who are like, I just want to make a movie, but they don't have any any inkling of how to do it. Now, our crew all wanted to make a movie, and all of us have touched aspects of production um, in one degree or another. And many of us in lots of, you know, have a lot of skill there. So coming together, we were able to put a good product together. But then we had a product in place before we went out to the Kickstarter community. And I think that says a lot. And you see this a lot, whether it's a, a video project or whether it's, you know, like I'm a big fan of Peak Design. Um, you know, the guys that make great, they make these amazing camera straps and stuff. Yeah. And they've already got their prototype done. They've got the product ready to go to production before they put anything out, right? Before they come to you and say, hey, here's our new product. You know, and I backed it. I almost backed them by a knee-jerk reaction because I always know that they're going to put something good because they've already done the work. Yeah. And so that's one of the things we did. We we came back with the film in the can, right? Um, I don't, you know, 
we shouldn't have to go back to Iceland to get more footage, right? Mm -hmm. Or to do more pickups because we had an aggressive schedule. We worked it hard. Everybody worked long hours and days, but we already had that product in the can. So when we came back, we're just asking for some help to get to the finish line, pretty much. So I think that's a big aspect of it, and and it's easy to you see all these big Kickstarters that are super successful, and it's like, wow, I should do that. You know, I should, you know, I can, I don't need to put any money. I don't need to have any skin in the game. Well, everybody in this film had skin in the game before we even got on the plane to Iceland, and I think that says a lot for the cast and crew, the, the people that came together to make the film, but then I think that carries over when you go out to ask in a Kickstarter, look, we've, we've already committed ourselves to this project, to Jeff's earlier, meant, you know, go back a year in time when Jeff and Andy started putting this together and like, okay, blinders on, we're going to make a movie, right? We're focused, you know, eyes on the prize. As each one of us came on board, we all had that same mentality, eyes on the prize. And so when we got back from Iceland, we had a product that was worth putting out there, and I think that's part of what the Kickstarter community is responding to. You yeah. obviously see it in the Kickstarter trailer. So yeah, that's a, yeah. What you say it resonates because it's kind of like you know you're you're helping your kid buy his first car or buy a car, right? And it's a, it's a completely co different conversation if your kid comes to you and says, "Hey, I want to buy a car. Can I have X thousand dollars to do it?" Versus, "Hey, I've saved up." Twelve thousand, and I just need another seventy-five hundred. Can you help me? You know, so there's skin in the game, like you said, and you feel like, okay, this this person has put the effort in, and they're not trying to get a free ride or trying to get something for nothing. They actually have valued my effort and my contribution. They really need my help. So that maybe that's the key to the successful Kickstarter is showing people that you're in it and you have skin in the game before you start asking for money, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the the other key thing is I think we all see a lot of Kickstarters uh, go by that succeed or fail or whatever. And and I think the 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 successful ones they don't just happen. Um, you know, Kickstarter doing a campaign is uh, you know it, it's basically a full time job to to do it well. And we had an awesome team. Uh, you know, of of Cat, Gaddy, and Brienne Lerman and Andy and Doug were were really hitting it. So it wasn't just about oh, we went to Iceland, here's a clip, and then you get your uh, address book and just blast off an email to everybody. You know, I mean, there, there is a strategy, there is a lot of time and effort that goes into uh, really positioning it and, and how to deploy it. So it's not just, okay, every day we're uh, posting on Facebook, hey, we're still looking for money. You know, it's, you, you got to do it intelligently, you have to do it strategically, and, and you can't underestimate what that is. Um, and, and I think that's true for... Not just the Kickstarter, but for for everything. I mean, the the uh, one of the things that I know uh, happened happened with Boca is that you know we we made sure to fill the crew with people who are really talented and uh, and skillful individuals. Um, obviously, obviously you do that, but I think it's it's a matter of not underestimating any component. Of of the production and that and that goes through Kickstarter. Don't underestimate Kickstarter. It's a great platform, but it's not a switch that you flip on and money starts flying at you. Right, right. Yeah. I wish it were. That'd be pretty yeah. fat. Yeah, that would be an interesting I, business model. Right? If I had one other bit of Kickstarter advice um, sure. aside from have a product before you go to market, would be be grateful. I think one of the big things that uh, you know, even in the way Andy and Jeff sign off on the Kickstarter video, you know, um, with the shout out to the Kickstarter community in general. But then as we followed up, as people gave, you know, gave things, and particularly if they gave us a shout out on Twitter and said, you know, we back Boca, 
we were paying attention to the Twitter feeds and just saying thanks, right? Just saying, you know, thanks in that same thing in Facebook. Thanks for backing us. Thanks for being there for us. Mm-hmm. And, and we saw a lot of people follow up with that by, you know, following back up without us asking to say, you know, a week later, hey, Boca's, you know, th- three quarters of the way funded. You, you know, go back out. Just by saying thank you and being genuinely appreciative of the support that you get. I think that's a, that goes a long way on a Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, Frederick, I, I think you see this probably with your brand all the time, which is how do you move likes? How do you move thumbs up, right? Like that's people confuse likes and advocacy all the time. In fact, liking can stop advocacy because you think you were an advocate, right? So yeah. for us, we were extremely grateful that people went beyond likes and actually decided to back something and then decided to share something and then decided to put their name next to that thing they shared, right? Like that is, it's not just that it was about Boca, it's that I like, I just appreciate action. And, and clicking on a like, as nice as it can be, as good as it can make you feel good, it, it's, it's not advocacy, it's not movement, it's not action. And so to see, to see actually that kind of movement come together for Boca has been very humbling and, and something amazing for the entire crew yeah. and nothing that we're grateful for. No, I agree, I agree. I think the, I would like to see the dollar bill become the new like. Right. So, I mean, I, I would love it, love to see a release of Facebook where you, the liking something can be equated to be as easy as a click. So you guys are, if, if, if right. Facebook did a Kickstarter type implementation where people could go to your thing and just by clicking, donate a dollar to it, you know, right. or just like it. So, you know, click this and you like it, no money's exchanged, click this and you really like it and they get a buck or whatever denomination, you know. That would be amazing. That would be awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. hey, uh, Facebook, if you're listening, you can go ahead and take that. <laughs> <laughs> so what's uh, next for you guys, man? What's next? Are, now that this, this film is in the can on, on the shooting side, you know, post-production is still going on and distri- distribution and all that stuff. But what's next? Is there another film coming? Are we seeing Boca 2? You know, what's happening? This time it's bokier. Um, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> this um, time it's F1.2. <laughs> As long as we add an ER to the word, I think it, it becomes a sequel. Um, yeah, or a prequel. Do a prequel. This, well, you know, it's yeah. in sharp focus. Boca NATO, too. <laughs> oh, nice. Way to add NATO to yeah. it. Um, Jeff and I, we owe, like, we owe our entire crew. We owe our investors. We owe, we owe Kickstarter. We owe everyone to be 100% heads down on Boca until it's done. That's usually yeah. why films don't finish is because you distract yourselves. Sure. All that being said, this is our first film. Like, this is there is going to be a second film, and there will be another. And it's not, again, to begin with, we kind of have to take the same approach. Maybe we'll, maybe the budget goes up, maybe the camera moves to an Alexa, like maybe we get four more crew members, but we also, we're not waiting for a festival to tell us we're allowed to make another film, right? We don't, we're not waiting for some, it could take a year and a half to get an agent, even if you get a festival. It could take two years for it to be distributed, even if you have the best things going for you. And so what we're not going to do is wait to make a second film. So... We're going to finish Boca. We're going to go heads down, and then Jeff and I are talking our ideas now. Um, we're excited to work with this crew. We're excited to add some new crew members to it and and go from there. But this is what, what's always been exciting about Boca is Boca's our first film, yeah. not our last. I love it. I think that's that's a perfect way to end this. So congratulations, guys, on doing this on the film. I can only imagine the logistics that were involved in putting this thing together and going overseas with a group of 14-plus people to shoot this and... You know, and now the fun is just beginning, right? Because now you're in post and you got to get it out there. And so it's, it's, I, I think a lot of people discount how much work goes into something like this because they can just, hey, I could shoot that with my phone. I'll just click a button and I got it, you know. 
it's a little bit more detailed than that, you know, as Joe is smiling over here. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little bit. So, guys, thanks a lot for coming on. I appreciate it. It's been educational and uh, inspirational. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. Yeah. All right. See you soon. Take care. That brings us to the end of another episode of This Week in Photo. Once again, thanks to our friends over at Squarespace.com for their support. If you'd like to learn more about the Boca film and check it out once it's released, just head over to BocaTheMovie.com. That's B-O-K-E-H, BocaTheMovie.com. And to stay up to date on all things photography, be sure to visit our website over at ThisWeekInPhoto.com. And with that, it's time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production produced by Suzanne Llewellyn with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.